Welcome to this week's sermon from Amblecote Community Church. Amen. Thank you, Vanessa. Seeing as I had a chance to have a sort of bonus preach, um, I thought um, what I'd do is pick a couple of passages from Luke that... um, where Jesus talks about what it means to follow him. And uh, I think these texts are some of the most important bits of the Bible for understanding Jesus and the life that he calls us to. So I'm going to take this opportunity to lay them before us this morning. And I pray that as we look at them, um, that Jesus speaks to you as we uh, kind of open the Bible and as I talk about these texts. I want to start, though, seeing as we're on Remembrance Sunday by uh, quoting Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Many of you will know him, but Bonhoeffer was a German pastor and theologian and lived through the uh, first half of the 20th century. And he rose to prominence, really, um, in the Nazi era as one of the key anti-Nazi Christian leaders of the time in Germany. And this was a time where huge swathes of the German church were in support of Hitler and the Nazi agenda, which seems unbelievable now. But history is often like that, isn't it? It seems unbelievable looking back. But at the time, huge swathes of the church were in support of the Nazi agenda, and Bonhoeffer was one of those that resisted. And despite enormous pressure and threat to his life, Bonhoeffer led Christian and secular resistance until his execution in 1945, a couple of months before the end of the war. And in 1937, just as things were looking like war was likely to break out at some point, he wrote this, he wrote, Cheap grace is the deadly enemy of our church. We are fighting today for costly grace. Cheap grace means grace sold on the market like cheap jacks wares. The sacraments, the forgiveness of sins and the consolations of religion are thrown away at cut prices. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance Baptism without church discipline, communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Today, as in Bonhoeffer's day, there are lots of different versions of Christianity that can be found in our world. And many of them are not authentic. They don't match up to what Jesus says about following him. So what is the authentic life of following Jesus that he calls us to? What does it mean to be a Christian? That's what I want us to look at this morning. And to do that, we're going to take some text in Luke's gospel. So uh, if you have your Bibles, why don't you find the book of Luke? We'll start in chapter 9. If you don't have a paper Bible, feel free to get your phones out. And uh, if you've got a Bible app, it's easy. But if you haven't got a Bible app, you can also just Google Luke 9 and click through to it. Um, And uh, I'm going to start at verse 22. But let me just give you a bit of context. So Luke chapter 9 uh, marks a turning point in Jesus' life. Luke is uh, one of four accounts of Jesus' life that we have in the Bible. And um, each of these accounts tells a story in a bit of a different way. And in Luke's, in Luke's version, 
uh, in chapter 9, having spent a couple of years healing and gathering disciples in Galilee and northern Palestine, uh, we read that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. At this point in Luke's account, Jesus begins his final journey towards Jerusalem. This is significant because we know that Jerusalem is the place where Jesus was going to be rejected and betrayed and abandoned by his disciples. Jerusalem was going to be where he would suffer at the hands of the Romans and be crucified. So Jerusalem and his sort of sacrifice, his passion, that is his destination at this point. He sets his face to go there. And it's a crucial moment, not just for him, but for his disciples. Because what it means to follow someone very much depends on where they're going, doesn't it? That's what it means to follow, to go where someone is going. So Jesus' destination determines what it means to follow him. And I think that's why at this moment Jesus chose to say some significant things about what it meant to be his disciple. Disciple just means a follower, one who learns from Jesus. If you want to follow Jesus, it means becoming a disciple. And Jesus takes his moment to say, I'm going to Jerusalem, therefore here's what it means to follow me. So let's read some of these passages. So we'll start at Luke uh, chapter 9, verse 21 to 25. I'm sorry I don't have it on the screen. I forgot about a PowerPoint. And Jesus strictly charged and commanded his disciples to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man, that's one of Jesus' ways of talking about himself, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? And stay in the same chapter but scroll down or read down to verse 30, 57. Sorry. So a little bit later in the same chapter. As they're going along the road, verse 57, as they're going along the road to Jerusalem, someone said to him, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I'll follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plough and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. I'll explain some of that in a minute. But finally, the final verse I want us to read together is a few chapters forward in Luke chapter 14. So I'll give you a minute or two to relocate to Luke chapter 14, and we'll pick it up at verse 25. Luke chapter 14, verse 25 to 33. So Jesus is well on the way to Jerusalem now, and great crowds accompanied him. And he turned around and he said to the crowds, 
If anyone comes after me and doesn't hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, wanting to build a tower, doesn't first sit down and count the cost, whether he's got enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation, he's not able to finish his tower, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build, but he wasn't able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if he can't, while the other's a great way off, he'll send a delegation and ask for terms of peace. So therefore, if any one of you does not renounce all that he possesses, he cannot be my disciple. Okay, feel free to keep your, your, your finger or your bookmarks in those verses. So whoever wants to follow Jesus, according to Jesus, must take up their cross daily. Carrying your cross has become a bit of a cliche for us, isn't it? You know, an annoying neighbour is our cross to bear or something like that. But in Jesus' time, the only people who carried crosses were condemned criminals who were walking to the place of their execution. To pick up your cross means to walk to your death. That would be a totally legitimate way of translating the sense of what Jesus is saying. Whoever wants to follow Jesus must lose their lives, as he said. And he makes it clear that following him must be the supreme priority in your life. Burying your father when he's died. Saying goodbye to your family when you're going away. These are good family duties that we would expect a good person to do. But Jesus claims that even these good duties are secondary to his commands. He says, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. So no wonder then that having said these things, Jesus then warns us to count the cost before we follow him. Like he would if you were building a house or fighting a war. Count the cost before you make the decision. Let's just translate this into our realities a bit this morning. You know, what's the life of discipleship according to Jesus for us then? What might it involve? Or what must it cost? Well, the metaphor that I find most helpful for this is that of a blank check. The life of following Jesus effectively means writing a blank check to Jesus. If I write a blank check and give it to Anne Conroy in the front row, she has the power then to go and to take whatever she wants up to the full total of all that I possess or at least all that's in that particular bank account. I've given her permission to do that when I write her a blank check. And that's why it's like following Jesus. You write him a blank check. Only this check doesn't just contain all your money. It contains everything in your life. You sign over your rights for the whole of your life to Jesus. There's three things I want to talk about specifically that it will cost you to follow Jesus. The first thing that the life of following Jesus is going to cost you is your sin. 
Jesus makes it crystal clear that following him means repenting from our sin, turning away from everything and anything that displeases God. And that means letting God decide what's right and wrong, rather than you deciding what's right and wrong. And then choosing to live in line with what God says. And this is really costly because actually we're quite attached to our sin, or at least some of it. On the whole, um, we don't normally need somebody to force us to sin. Normally, we go there ourselves because we think that it will make us happier on some level, perhaps. Uh, Or even if we recognize that, you know, maybe this isn't going to make me happy in the long run. Sometimes we're just too proud to give it up or it's a sort of part of our life that we're just so attached to, it's hard to let go. You know, we want to do things our way. We don't really want to submit to a God who tells us what is right and what is wrong. So repenting from your sin is really costly because it's a lifelong effort of turning away every day and every week and every month from all that God opposes. And it goes on for as long as you live. And I think a danger for some of us is that um, you know, when we've been Christians a while, we might start zealously repenting of sins left, right, and center. Um, but coming to a point where we somehow realize that actually we've compromised with sin and we've settled and yet still think we're following Jesus. And there's plenty of times where this has been true in my own life. This is one of those sermons that you're preaching first to yourself and second to anyone else who will listen. I have had times of compromising with relationships I shouldn't have been in, compromising with pornography, and I talked a bit about that before the summer, times of compromising with selfish ambition and arrogance. We can compromise with anything. Selfishness, greed, materialism, envy, gossip, dishonesty, sexual sin. One of the functions of these bits of the Bible that list sins is, is a, to allow us to check our own hearts. We can compromise with any of these things. Sometimes we live these double lives, don't we? Like I know I have at various times. My guess would be you know what I'm talking about. Fully aware that we're, di- we're living compromised with sin. Fully aware that what we're doing is wrong. And knowing that we're compromising our faith. And in these times, we have a choice. We can continue to live a compromised life, calling ourselves Christians, but not really following him. Or we can surrender our sin to Jesus. We can repent again and again and again. And we can do the hard work of repentance, you know, bringing our sin into the light confessing to other people and involving them, changing the rhythms and habits of our life that lead us into sin. It's hard work. But we can choose to follow Jesus. You know, I'm totally clear that for me, these times, in these times of compromise, I totally believe that God's real and that Jesus is true. You know, It's not been a belief issue. It's been an issue of whether I fully give my life or not. It's so tempting to settle for a certain level of sin. 
But that is not compatible with following Jesus. The life of faith is a constant battle. John White, a really helpful Christian writer, he's dead now, I think, part of the Vineyard Movement in America. He wrote a book, An Introduction to the Christian Life for New Believers. It's titled, The Fight. That's how he characterised it. John Owen, one of the most influential English pastors that has ever lived, once wrote, be ever killing sin or it will be killing you. So following Jesus is going to cost you your sin. And hopefully um, you've, you've heard a bit about how Jesus forgives our sins and makes us right with God. I'm not going to go into that now. We'll hit a lot of that in the spring when we preach through Galatians. But it's not just going to cost you sin. Following Jesus is also going to cost you all your stuff, all your possessions. Jesus says it really clearly in that passage we read in Luke 14. Whoever doesn't give up all that they have cannot be my disciple. And this is quite simply one of the most radical things that Jesus ever says. And it means that following Jesus will require you to act completely differently to the people that you live amongst. Completely differently. In our culture, um, a bit of charitable giving might be applauded, but the common expectation is that my money belongs to me and I can do with it whatever I like. I may have an obligation to pay taxes, at least the ones that I can't get away with not paying. But beyond that, it's mine. Well, not if you want to follow Jesus, it's not. Jesus says that when you choose to follow him, all that you have, all your money and possessions and time and skills and talent, blah, 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 all you have, you have to give up and give them to him, for him to use as he sees fit, not as you see fit, as he sees fit. I don't think he can say it any clearer. Everything changes then when we become Christians. Everything changes. We no longer own anything in one sense. We just become stewards of what God allows us to look after for him. And perhaps the most common misconception among Christians about their possessions is that obedience with our money just means tithing. You know, isn't this the deal that if we give Jesus by the church 10% of our income, then we're done then? We're following Jesus with our money. But no, Jesus says it's all of it, I'm afraid. <laughs> it's all of it. All of your money is to be placed at his service. And I realise tithing's had a long run in the church, and I've taught on this extensively before. I'm not going to do it all again now. But in case you haven't heard that teaching, I just want to give you two things to think about if you're used to a theology of tithing. First of all, even in the Old Testament, where the tithing laws are, no one was ever required to give just 10%. There were two tithes a year and a third tithe every three years and first fruit offerings and all sorts of other things. So if we want to use the Old Testament tithing laws as a guidance for our giving, then we should be giving around 25 to 30% straight out every year. But don't worry too much about that because... The, the most important point is that the tithing laws are just irrelevant for us. Jesus has come and fulfilled the Old Testament law. It no longer applies to us. We live following him rather than under the Old Testament law. So, we follow what he says. And he says, everything that you have is to be given to me if you want to follow me. 
So we should be left in no doubt when we read our New Testaments that the life of faith means a radical generosity that should have a substantial impact on our standard of living. So following Jesus will cost you your sin and it will cost you your stuff. And finally, in fleshing this out, I'll talk about a third S, which is that following Jesus will cost you your self-determination. Okay. It will cost you your rights. It's a blank check. It's got everything on it. Your choice of career, your desires about where you live. You moved me down to the black country. (laughs) You may well get to work in a job you enjoy and live where you want because God often works with our desires rather than against them. He created us in certain ways to serve him. But that's not something that we can assume. God regularly calls people to places and tasks that they don't think very highly of. On that blank check, we'll say your time, your right to do what you like with your free time. Does that mean you can never rest, never go on holiday? Of course it doesn't. But it radically reorientates those things. Rest and holiday is no longer a self-serving what I want to do, but becomes a rest for Rest for the life of following Jesus. Rest in order to better serve him in all of my life. It's a means, no longer an end in itself. And the blank check also has your relationships on it. And I know this can be a big one. Has been in my life. For example, what if following Jesus means I have to stop sleeping with my girlfriend and then she might leave me if I do that? Well, yeah, following Jesus might cost you your relationship. What if it means refusing to be part of a deceptive practice at work? I might lose those relationships. Yeah, you might. You might lose your relationships at work. Finally, on that blank check, is your very life. There may be some here this morning who know this because they've experienced threat to their life for the sake of following Jesus. Most of us haven't yet been faced with this. But for all of us, it's on the check. So the life of faith costs everything. Um, Reread Jesus' words if you want to. He makes it clear, I think. It's all or nothing. Whoever loses his life for my sake carries his cross and follows me, renounces all that he has, those are the ones who can be my disciples. So Bonhoeffer said this, he said, when Christ calls a man, he he bids him to come and die. If you feel that Jesus is calling you to him, then be clear, he calls you to come and die. That's what taking up your cross means. But I can't finish there, not because all that I've said isn't true, I believe it is, but because there's more to be said. A Christian missionary called Jim Elliot was a contemporary of Bonhoeffer, lived at the same time, and he said this, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. If you lose your life, Jesus promises 
you will find it. Think back over the list of what I've talked about, of what the life of faith is going to cost you. It's going to cost you your sin. But in the end, has your sin really satisfied the longings of your heart? Really been worth it? It promises pleasure and regularly allures us, but it never delivers true satisfaction. It leaves us empty. The wages of sin are death, the Bible says, and that's just true. It's just a consequence. Our sin leaves us dead on the inside, not alive. Is it really worth holding on to? And the rest, like our staff, our time, our physical life, like can you really keep it? When your three score years and ten are up, or your hundred years, if you're Bill Webb, what then? Can any of you really guarantee that you'll even see tomorrow? I don't think you can. Can you really guarantee that your relationships will endure? Or actually, isn't our thought that we're in control of these things just a massive illusion, really? We're in control of so little. So it doesn't make sense to try and hold on to all these things that we can't control rather than to come to the one who controls all things. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep, and you can't keep it, to gain what you cannot lose. And what gain there is to be had. For those who have lived the life of following Jesus, we know the wonderful truth. That it's when we're most given over to Jesus when we have most died to ourselves and given him everything and it's costed us greatly, but when we've obeyed, there we find the real meaning of our lives. Jesus also said somewhere else that he had come to give us life to the full. And it's the Christian paradox that as we follow the hard road of discipleship, we discover the life to the full that Jesus promised. And there's no other way to know that's true than to do it. I want to read a final bit of the Bible this morning. Final-ish. This is from Paul's second letter to the Corinthian church. He says, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, in great endurance, in troubles, hardships, distresses, beatings, imprisonments and riots, in hard work, sleepless nights and hunger, in purity and understanding and patience and kindness, in the Holy Spirit and in sincere love, in truthful speech and in the power of God, with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and the left, through glory and dishonour, bad report and good report, genuine yet regarded as impostors, known yet regarded as unknown. Listen to these words. Dying, and yet we live on. Beaten, and yet not killed. Sorrowful, and yet always rejoicing. Poor, and yet making many rich. Having nothing for the sake of Jesus. Yet possessing everything. It is only as we give our lives away 
and spend ourselves on Jesus and his kingdom that we find our lives. That is the only route to life. We were designed for God. You were created to serve him and to know his love. And until you are serving God with all of your life, you will not be living the life you were created for. And something inside you will know it. Something inside you will know it. Does that mean that Christians now constantly feel these things? Are we a constant barrel of satisfied, joyful purpose? No. But living the life of faith, we have a deposit of these things. We have a true taste, truer and more full than anything else we've ever tasted. But still only the taste, because the full banquet is reserved for the resurrection. And I'll speak about the resurrection in a few weeks' time. True life is to be gained here and now, perfected and fulfilled in the resurrection to come. And that's why the Christian can endure such suffering now and sacrifice now. Why can you endure losing all that you have? Because nothing is truly lost. Yeah. I'll talk about the resurrection next time. I'll talk about the resurrection next time. So Paul again in 2 Corinthians, he says this. Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, inwardly we are being renewed day by day for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Far outweighs them all. He is no fool. He gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. In uh, 1959, at the age of 29, four years after he married, Jim Elliot, the missionary who wrote that, he was killed by the Horani tribe that he was trying to serve and reach with the gospel, along with four of his companions at the age of 29. Their wives and their young children remained in Ecuador amongst the tribes and continued the work which eventually saw the tribes converted in huge numbers coming to faith. Even more than Jim, his wife lived out the truth of this sermon. This is the life of faith, according to Jesus. And even though you and I may not be martyred, though we might, it's still going to cost us everything. Not all our blank checks will be cashed for the full amount but they all have to be written. So, if you're a Christian this morning, I guess, let me ask you this, as I ask myself, is there evidence in your life of costly discipleship? Is there? In one of his letters, Paul exhorts us, saying, examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. Well, this is how Jesus defined faith. Is there evidence in your life of costly discipleship? Is there evidence in your life that you're walking the way of Jesus as he described it? Another missionary, this time a guy called Avery Willis, he once wrote this. I'm part of the fellowship of the unashamed. I have Holy Spirit power. The die has been cast and I've stepped over the line. The decision has been made. 
I'm a disciple of his. I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense. My future is secure. I'm finished with low living, sight walking, small planning, smooth knees, colourless dreams, tamed visions, mundane talking, cheap living and dwarfed goals. I no longer need prominence, prosperity, position, promotions, plaudits or popularity. I don't have to be right, I don't have to be first, I don't have to be recognised, praised, regarded or rewarded. I now live by faith and lean on his presence, walk by patience, live by prayer and labour by power. My face is set, my gate is fast, my goal is the resurrection. My road is narrow, my way is rough, my companions are few. But my guide is reliable and my mission is clear. I cannot be bought, compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, deluded or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of adversity, negotiate at the table of the enemy, ponder at the pool of popularity or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up, shut up, let up until I have stayed up, stored up, prayed up, paid up and preached up for the cause of Christ. I am a disciple of Jesus. I must go till he comes, give till I drop and work till he stops me. And he says this at the end. When he comes for his own, he will have no problem recognising me. My banner will be clear. My banner will be clear. Lord, will my banner be clear? Or yours? If you're not yet a Christian, and you were maybe wondering what it will cost you to follow Jesus, well, hopefully you've heard it loud and clear today. It costs you everything. Everything you have. everything. You'll have to lose your life, but as Jesus said, as you lose your life for his sake, you will find it. You will find the life that you were made for. I'm going to just close with another quote from Bonhoeffer and then I'm done. Does the band want to come back? I think, I think we're doing that, aren't we? Here's a final quote from Bonhoeffer. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will gladly go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy for which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it's grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It's costly because it costs a man his life. And it's grace because it gives a man the only true life. It's costly because it condemns sin. And it's grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it cost God the life of his son. You were bought at a price. 
and what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. But above all, it is grace, because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our lives, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Amblecote Community Church. For more information about who we are, what we believe, and how you can get involved, check out our website 